We're in Ephesians chapter 6. We've got a handful of verses, verses 10 through 12 to deal with today. So if you uh, have your Bibles, why don't you find Ephesians 6. As always, we'll have the text on the screen if you forgot yours. Um, I have to confess I'm not the best at email. Um, probably no surprise to you. Um, I, I really don't like it, um, but it's a reality, so I cooperate. That's how I choose to do it. But I have learned a skill, or at least developed a habit with email, is when I get them, I read the last paragraph first. I skip everything else and just get to the bottom line, because everybody has a bottom line. They want something, or they've got something to say, so I skip it. I, I ultimately read most of it, but I do that first. We are in a section of Scripture, the very end of Paul's discussion of the church at Ephesus. Um, it is... Uh, the last paragraph, as it were. And I'm not suggesting to you that it's the most important stuff, but I am telling you that it's the most sober stuff. It is the spiritual warfare that's a reality for every child of Christ. And uh, it's, it gets not talked about very much. Um, it probably gets ignored uh, more than uh, we'd admit, but it's a reality. And we're dealing with the reality this week and the following two weeks. So uh, would you read with me verses 10 through 12? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Three little verses, two commands, and one big sobering why. Two commands are simple. Be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. And the why is because, these are my words, there is an invisible opposition to what God is doing in the world and in your life. And it's real. So we, uh, I did the count. I went back in the calendar and, and, and noted that we've spent nine months so far, 37 sermons in the book of Ephesians. We'll have three more, so about 10 months in this study together. Ephesians is broken up in a very logical manner, two halves, one half doctrine, one half duty. What God did creates something new in us and we go and live differently. That's kind of how it breaks out. We started this whole discussion, or Paul does, in first three of chapter one where he describes it in like a, like a, a consensus thought about every spiritual blessing we have in Christ. He said it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. That phrase, every spiritual blessing, is basically a, a, a short phrase to describe everything he's gonna say for the next three chapters. He goes on in detail to describe that blessing. So just for the sake of warming our hearts to this study, let, let me just blast through this. Paul tells us, in every spiritual blessing, they were, we are chosen and predestined and adopted, that we're redeemed and forgiven and lavished with the love of God. That we've been born again into a kingdom where all things are under the rule and reign of King Jesus alone. That we're heirs of a promise, we're sealed with the Spirit, we're empowered by Christ. We are recipients of grace and mercy. We are saved from our sin and the condemnation of our sin because of God. We are no longer separated without hope and without God, we've been brought near. We are a new man with a brand new identity. We are sharers, and these are Paul's words, in the mystery of God's good news. And this mystery is that all who would believe, not just Jews, anybody and everybody who comes to Christ is his, in Christ. And we, his church, 
are the display case for the manifold wisdom of God to all rulers and all authorities. That's three chapters. That is every spiritual blessing in a fly-through. That's the doctrine. But Paul goes on in chapters four, five, and six, and he says it's not just good enough to know this stuff. It needs to transform your life. There's a connection to heart change with these every spiritual blessings. It's obvious. And so therefore, for three chapters, we've been looking at the ways in which Paul is being specific. In fact, he started in chapter 4, verse 1, teasing up the whole idea of life change when he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, have your life match your confession. What you know needs to be shown in your life. And he went on to describe that for us, that the gospel makes us like Jesus. It makes us a people who are humble and gentle and patient, a people who are eager for unity, who are growing in maturity. We're putting off our old life and our old practices and we're putting on Christ, the likeness of God. We speak the truth. We meet people's needs. We control our anger. We control our tongues. We imitate God in the walk of love in our world, around our neighbors. We do away with idols like sex or things or position, whatever they may be. We walk in wisdom. And we live a life of mutual submission to one another. Children to parents, parents to children, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, employers to employees, employees to employers. And that was what we've looked at for the last several weeks. And that is this expression of this life change. Every spiritual blessing changing the heart of a man or a woman equals these these actions. And after all that, after all we've learned for nine months, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. I've never been a coach. Well, that's not true. I coached wrestling for a little while. Um, And there are fundamentals in wrestling, but I think more like football or baseball where guys go out and they just do the same routines all the time. And if they they build some structure for for how to play and things to do and not do, my assumption as a coach says, now go and play. Go and do, Right? Well, Paul stops short of just saying, here's the things that the gospel does in your life, now go and do. He stops and has something to say before he sends us out to do. It's a very sober reminder of some some obstacle, and that is this phrase. It's be strong in the Lord. Here's why Paul says that, because Paul knows there's obstacles for everyone who is in Christ who chooses to walk a new life. It is not easy. But then again, you've learned that, haven't you? Come on now. Everyone who's walked with Christ knows it's not, it's not easy. For example, you focused on being like Jesus, maybe possibly in some one particular area of your life, and so you've made it a matter of prayer. You've picked up books, bought books, read books, did studies to try to address that particular area of your life, that weakness, that struggle in your life. You've got wisdom and counsel. You've gone to pastors. You've had people hold you accountable. You've confessed your failures, and you've made promises to God. And, you know what I'm saying, it's still there. Or or maybe it's diminished, but it's not gone like you prayed it to be gone. Like you read it to be gone, like you were counseled for it to be gone, it's still there. Whatever that experience is, and we all have that experience, I think that's what motivates Paul's instructions, his last motivation here, okay? He knows the struggle. He knows the challenges. He knows the struggle of dealing with our own sin, our own mess-ups, let alone the sin of others and how they mess up towards us, and that's part of it. 
He knows what it's like to fight the battle of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He understands that stuff. He knows the struggle. And he knows more than we know, apparently, about the invisible opposition. Because we certainly don't live like there's demonic forces trying to refashion us in a different way. So, are you tired this morning? Are you discouraged? You're dealing with depression? Are you defeated? Are you surviving? Okay. Then more than you can realize, and clearly more than we give credit to, there are demonic forces at work against you. And I'm not trying to say there's a devil behind every door. But I'm, I'm clear that Paul is clear that he, Satan, and his demonic forces play way more of an effect in our life than you could possibly fathom. Paul tells us about these forces in verse 12. Let me just take some time and try to pick some things apart about how he describes them just to, just to, just to give us a sense of what these, this opposition looks like. Notice, first of all, uh, Paul says in verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, the opposition is supernatural. It's not flesh and blood. In fact, later on in that same verse, he calls them forces of evil in heavenly places, which is code for supernatural world. These are not bone and flesh and blood. That's not our problem. And yet, let me ask you a question. Why do we act like it's a problem? Why do you think your problem is those people? You, we all have the list of those people. It could, it could be someone of a particular type, political type, and you go, man, if they just got it, our world would be so much better. My life would be better. If that religion, that whack religion, if they just got it, it'd be so much better. If that group of people with that certain kind of lifestyle, if they just changed their lifestyle, it'd be better. If that business guy, those people out there who do business in shady ways, if they just did it better, we have lists of those people. You know, we, just, we wouldn't describe them this way, but of all those people without God, you know how great my life would be if those people without God would get it? Here's what Paul tells you. The problem isn't those people. If, if I could, if I had the pixie dust and I could fix all those people for you, you would still have an invisible opposition you would still have the forces of evil set up against you and Christ in you. All this thing about living godly and loving like Christ, you think it'd be easier if all those people just went away? I'm telling you, it wouldn't. You are diminishing the powers of evil that Paul talks about here. That he said, prepare yourself by being strong in the Lord. You're just acting like it doesn't matter and it's not that big a deal if you think that the fight is flesh and blood. And Paul says, it is, it is supernatural fight. Let me add to this understanding. Paul says the opposition is personal. It really hovers around that phrase, we do not wrestle. The word wrestle is struggle. The word refers to hand-to-hand -hand combat. This is not like you and I would choose to fight a fight. You know, we'd get arrows or bullets and we'd pew, shoot at people a long ways away. The phrase actually means sweat on sweat. It, it, it means breath to breath. It describes a picture of you in a personal hands-on-hands -hands conflict with an enemy. That's exactly how Paul sees the opposition. It's personal. It isn't over there. It's not a concept. In fact, this is what the scriptures tell us. In 1 Peter, Peter says, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's personal. Let me add to, to this opposition, our understanding of it. The opposition is relentless. There's a word that Paul repeats in these three verses a lot. Do you see the word? You probably skip over it because you don't study this word. It's, it's the word against. He mentions it six times and he didn't have to. He could have said it once and just added all these categories of, of forces against you. But he says it the way he says it intentionally. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make it abundantly clear that you and I are up against a relentless enemy. In fact, he says it kind of like this, the breath to breath, the fight to fight, the sweat to sweat kind of personal nature of it. You are against schemes, against the supernatural, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, and against spiritual forces. That's how he says it. You are against. It's relentless. Anybody feel like it's relentless? Yeah. If you're honest, it feels like it's relentless. Here's another one. The opposition is powerful. First John tells us, and we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even in our study in Ephesians, Paul has already told us, referring to Satan, calling him the prince of the power of the air, a spirit that's out work in the sons of disobedience, that he's busy and this is kind of his turf. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, talks about Satan and says that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. You want an explanation why it's so obvious to you and so clueless to other people? Well, there's a blinder going on. You think it's obvious, like, hey, you want hope? You want joy? You want to be free from your sin? Rest in a savior. Receive what Christ has already finished. And they look at you like you're nuts. What are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Blinded to the minds of the unbelievers. Hiding the glory of Christ. They can't see it. And he's active doing that. But let me just say this. That, even though that's the scriptures, it goes on to say that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. And he disguises himself as an angel of light. Even though all those things are true, as powerful as he sounds in those texts, he is not even a half of a pixel of the portrait of God's power. He can't even sniff the power of God. But let's be honest. Why does it feel like it's an evil good fight and it's equal? Why does it feel like it depends on the day? Depends on the circumstance. Well, I'll tell you why, at least one reason why, because Satan is a great in imitator. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. And he's not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere, even though you might feel like he is. Here's what he does. He fakes it with multitudes of demons. That's how he fakes these things. He can't be all-knowing. He can't be everywhere, but he can place his forces in lots of places to give us the illusion that he's everywhere knowing everything, but he doesn't. He's a liar. He's an absolute liar. He fakes it all. It's kind of like him saying, hey, come here for joy. Come here for satisfaction. Come here for happiness. <laughs> he's faking it. It's not true. And here's a reminder. Obviously, there's a whole other sermon in this statement, but I didn't want to leave you with that. All of the darkness that Paul talks about here, all of the evil forces, the cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil, the devil himself all owe their existence to Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, for by him, that's Christ, 
All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Everything is subjected to Christ. There's one who's sovereign, there is one who knows all things, and it's Jesus. Christ alone. Christ alone. And even Satan and his demonic forces, as we will see, are in subjection to Christ. I want you to notice something else about this invisible opposition. It's organized. At least it appears to be organized. When Paul lays out kind of the description of these forces, he says things like uh, there's rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. It suggests some kind of organized evil, right? Like organized crime. It's, it's much worse than that. This is, as one writer would say, whatever these particular titles refer to in specific, it, at least it paints a picture of a defined and disciplined chain of command, that there is some kind of organized attempt to thwart the plan of God in your life and in the world. It's just not willy-nilly happenstance. This is an organized attack. And you, you, you probably already know that because it seems so specific in your own life, right? Possibly even in your world. One last thing uh, to draw your attention to, and we'll extrapolate on this one, but that is this. I want you to see that our opposition is scheming. That's how Paul starts out this discussion. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. He's very skilled at scheming. (laughs) Let me give you a reason why. As one writer says, he has been honing his methods for a millennia. He is an accomplished philosopher, theologian, psychologist, and he's had thousands and thousands of years to study. He goes on to say, I'm no genius at mathematics, but even with my limited capabilities, I could be terrific at math if I worked at it for 100 years. If I labored hard at it it for 1,000 years and read all the learned theories, I'd be a Newton or an Einstein. What if I had 10,000 years? Given that time, any of us could become the world's greatest philosopher, psychologist, or theologian, or, or linguist. Satan has had multiple millennia to study and master the human disciplines, and when it comes to human subversion, he is the ultimate manipulator. Does that make sense to you? He doesn't know everything. He's just worked longer than anybody. He has watched and, and, and seen it played out. He knows what we're attracted to and the things we run from. He knows all that and he leverages all of that. The scriptures tell us he masquerades as an angel of light. He knows we'd run from a, a red suit and pitchfork. He knows we'd go the other way. So what does he do? He puts on a smiley face and he pretends to be truth. He, he, he pretends to be an alternative to the only way that seems as gracious as his kindness any other way. He twists the truth. That's how this whole mess got started, by the way. You can't even pick up the narrative of Scripture. You get in the garden, you find Adam and Eve, and the first words out of Satan's mouth were, did God really say, can you really trust him? And here we are dealing with our lives. He instills doubt about the character of God. Is he really good? Does he really save? Are you sure? Maybe God's getting old. Maybe he's getting tired. Maybe he's getting senile. Maybe he's distracted somewhere else. Maybe he's not everywhere. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he didn't love. And you sit there and wrestle with those thoughts, and they come at you just like, like shotgun shells, and you kind of go, ah. He instills doubt about the character of God, and as one writer put it, he, his strategies are unseen and perfectly tailored for every victim. It's kind of spooky. 
Let me try to describe the scheming because I think it would help for us to get more specific about the schemes I was reading this week and I found somebody who laid out what I thought were some really helpful points so I just want to share them with you. Paul tells us to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11 to take care lest Satan take advantage of us for we are not so that we're not ignorant of his devices. So this is like a description of the ways and devices that he uses or his schemes in other words. Here's the first thing. Satan distracts us with things we need the least. It's one of his mechanisms, one of his schemes. Let me give you one example. How about knowledge without holiness? How about sacrifice without obedience? You understand what I'm saying? Someone once said that the, I don't know if it's true, but at least it gives me pause, that the greatest place to hide, to try to hide from God is church. If I'm there, if I go, if I hang with the crew, I'm good, right? If, if I'm a part of the environment and the culture of Christian, isn't Christ going to be mine then? It's interesting to me. We are more prone to increase in knowledge of what God said than we are willing to do what God said. Let me just prove my point. And I want you to be honest. Don't raise, don't raise your hand. Just I'll see it in your eyes, okay? Um, how many of you know more than you do? Sinner. Every one of us have gargantuan quantities of things we know we do not do, which is the ultimate counterfeit. It is the whole, yeah, yeah, I've got it. Look at what I, look what I know. I'm really comfortable with what I know. Let me teach a class on what I know. But my life doesn't line up. Let me try this one. How about we're good at doing God things without God? You might be able to pick this up and split the Bible at him. You might be that guy. The Einstein of Scripture. Like, you can do, you can do gymnastics with this thing. You just do it without God. Satan loves it when we get busy doing God stuff without God because he knows there's absolutely no power in it. You want it without God? Go for it. And it's busy. And it might even be true. Just has no spirit in it. There's no power in it. There's no supernatural in it. You're just duking it out with your own thoughts. Here's another scheme. Satan loves to deprive you of things you need the most. Again, one example. Seems to me that Paul's made it clear, even in Ephesians, that you and I, who call ourselves Christians, have not just been saved as individuals, but we've been saved into a corporate body. We are the bride of Christ. We are his church. That will always be the case. You are never not the church. You're never not plural. That's how the scriptures define it. In other words, we need each other. In fact, the body, according to Paul's writings, needs all the body in order for the body to grow. No individual grows without the body, and we can't fulfill our call. So this mandate to make disciples of all nations is totally impossible if it was just your mandate. You need the church. We need each other, right? Anybody got a problem with that narrative so far? Okay. Then let me ask you this question. What are the good, good, and I put quotes around good, what are the good reasons why that kind of body life just doesn't work for you? You know, I'm, I'm a busy man. I run a company. Kids are young. I'm tired. Been there, done that. Too restrictive. I don't work well with others. What are your reasons? 
Now that's just one example, but let me tell you, you have no idea how to measure the loss of something like the one another's when it comes to your maturity in Christ. You have no way to calculate what you don't have when you don't navigate in the church. And going to church isn't the one another's. It's interesting, though, when, when we're uh, presented with options, it's not like Satan sets before us a, an obviously evil alternative to the obviously good. He's more subtle than that. It's not like he said, hey, here's your choices, federal crime or love other people. We'd all win that one. Nope, no sweat, got it, I'll love other people. It's not that. He says, how about doing something good to avoid from doing something great? How about choose things you know are good, but there are the reasons and excuses why you'll never move into loving what God calls you to. We ha I don't even want to go there. I don't want to apply that one. I hope it, the Spirit is applying it to your own life. Satan is subtle. And he will say, he will say to you those good things, the blessings of God that God gives you, hey, you better steward those things. And, and the cost, ignore the bride. Ignore the bride. And God would never put you in that position. Satan does. And you make the calculated cost that the good thing is worth the ultimate thing. And it's not true. Let me add to our understanding of these schemes. How about this? Satan distresses us with problems we handle the worst and by the way, his skill at this comes from observation. He watches us. He's had enough time to watch us. So he sees how you and I handle money, how you and I deal with relationships. He watches our marriages and our parenting, and he sees how we navigate power and how we navigate control and how we deal with success. He knows what we're like when we're tired and stressed out. He's watching. And all of that is in play in order to defeat us. Just a little bit of trouble. And here comes your flesh. Just, just a tweak in the financial crisis situation. And I can justify a whole bunch of sin. He knows that. He knows your particular thing. Maybe money's not your thing. Maybe it's, your thing is totally opposite of that. Maybe it is just being loved by people, and so you serve the idol of others. So, he's, he's good at giving us problems that we handle the worst. Here's another scheme. Satan depresses us with burdens that are hard to bear. Uh, we could go in massive detail here, but let me just leave it pretty big and pretty cosmic. If I boiled down, at least in some small fashion, a way to describe the burdens that Jesus lifted from all of us, let's talk about this. How about shame? It, it, shame, we all deal with it. What I've done, where I've been, how I failed, how I dropped the ball, how I always drop the ball. I'm that person, I'm that guy, that's, that's who I am. That's what I've done. And so guilt, just he leverages guilt on us. And the things that God says he wants to use to refine us called suffering, he will, he'll put that there and he'll just say, really, well, does God really love you? And so questions come to mind. And then we run around with self-righteousness because they leverages that so we can try to fix our problems and the burdens, the burdens that all that Christ died to lift from us, Satan wants to pretend like it never happened. And so when you fail, he whispers in your ear, 
they're guilty. There is no cross. There could be no forgiveness for you. This is the 105th time you've come with this. And so he, he brings that to us. Here's what the scriptures tell us. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. And John tells us about the commands of God, about the instruction of God, that his instruction is not a burden. So whatever feels like a burden isn't from God. So you just go through your list. What feels heavy to me? God isn't doing it. Now, God is a father, and God will instruct, and God will mature us, and God will discipline us, but he will not bury you under burden. He came to lift burden. Satan is a schemer, and he leverages those burdens back on us. Here's another one. Satan deceives you with arguments you can't answer. Sometimes this happens when you're walking around trying to be really faithful to the call to witness of Christ, and you talk to people, and they ask you the, the unanswerable question. Have you ever considered old earth, young earth? And you just, uh, you lock up. You don't know what to say. You're confused and you start all these questions. Maybe that happens, but I don't think that's the main way. The arguments that Satan leverages are here. We face them internally. And what does Satan do when that happens? When he presses you with a question in your soul, you're reading the scriptures and something pops out and go, with that. And then you kind of feel, hear, sense, well, if you don't know that for sure, how can you know anything for sure? What, what do you really know? Isn't that supposed to be knowable? Don't Christians know what you don't know? There isn't a person I know who hasn't had to face the accuser with doubts about their own faith. Illustration. I've learned, like you've learned, that God is good. Come on, yeah? I've learned, like you have learned, that God is in control. And then you see some version of suffering that you have no way to file. And you go, okay, now I'm confused. Good, in control suffering. I don't know what to do with that. Well, Satan does. He doesn't question the fact that you are just a person growing in your knowledge of God without the sovereignty to know all the ways and fashions and ripples that God's using suffering to grow you and change the world. He just simply says, if you don't know that, then question God, the source. Sometimes it's like this. I don't feel anything. Every Christian I know who's walked long enough just knows it, and, and there's just like this dryness, right? Just a, I'm, I'm treading. But it's not like it was the first day I got saved. It's not like the day that the Holy Spirit dropped on me. It's not like that. I don't feel anything. And so he would come and say, well, if you don't feel anything, maybe there isn't anything. And he'll accuse you that way. Struggle with sin, he'll say, where's the victory? Didn't he say something about victory? You're not getting victory. And that mountain that you were supposed to pray to be moved, and your prayers don't move mountains. In fact, the mountains seem to get bigger. And then you conclude, well, then it's me, right? It's me. I don't believe enough. I don't know enough. Or God help us, or it's him. And he goes after all of it. He's a scorched earth accuser. He wants to question whether you're good enough or smart enough or faithful enough to have God, or he's willing to question whether God's good enough to keep his promise for you. 
He wants you to doubt the whole shooting match. And you can be stable one moment and then suddenly go, oh, that rocks my world. Does he really love me? Is he real? Does he exist? Those happen to Christians. Those questions come. And here's why. Because of this invisible opposition. Paul describes it as supernatural. It's not flesh and bone, blood blood to blood. It's personal. It's relentless. It's powerful. It's organized. And it's scheming after a millennium of having studied the human race. But, (laughs) I love this part. It's defeated. And here's what you've got to anchor yourself to. Paul is talking about the actions of Satan and his demonic forces now. But there is a reality for him that he's aware of. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. And you, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. It's over. Yeah? This, this may have been a brutal week for you. Brutal month, brutal year, decade. Tell me when to stop. <laughs> this fight that you're fighting may be secret, a secret that you've kept. Struggle greater than words could describe. But God knows. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us are discouraged because we just can't get it right. Some of us are discouraged because the doubts are are too loud in our heads. And it feels like you just throw up your hands and go, well, that's just the way it is. But I want you to hear Paul in Colossians. I need you to embrace what he says. Satan, 2,000 years ago, when Christ walked up that hill and was nailed on that cross, he thought, he thought for a brief second, and this proves that he doesn't know anything. I did it. I did it. I, I destroyed the creator of the world. This whole love thing he was doing, this passion walk, it's over, man. He's dead. He's going to die. And what he thought he won, Jesus crushed him in that death and resurrection. And we know that. We celebrate that. That is the cup. It's the bread. It's our story. Satan was crushed by the victory over sin and death. Yeah, he, he was truly defeated. And you know what? He knows it. He really knows it. He's defeated, but he's not destroyed yet. Someday, Christ will throw him into the lake of fire. But between his defeat and between his destruction is called our life. And in this midst, he's still trying to take as many as he can with him. He's trying to thwart the plan of God, the will of God in your life and in this world. And he lies and he deceives and he's wicked and he, he's just bad news. And sometimes we give him too much platform. We let him talk too long. We hover on the questions like somehow the questions have some truth to them as opposed to, that just reveals I don't know much. So he is defeated. He's just not yet destroyed That's why Paul finishes this whole book with these words, therefore be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God. Now we're gonna get to this armor in the next couple of weeks and talk in specific fashion of what Paul says to equip ourselves with. But as I close, let me remind you two things. There is something we cannot do and there is something we must do. The thing we cannot do 
is we cannot fight Satan by ourselves. I can't send you out here and go, okay, just make certain that you're always fighting and it's up to you. Go win it. Church, have fun. Here's the must do. We must live in the Lord's strength. We have to. And that's how Paul writes it. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. You see that? Is that phrase familiar to you? Even if it isn't, say yes, because that's the right answer. Chapter one, let me just remind you how this whole narrative started about what is ours in Christ Jesus, all the spiritual blessings. This is how Paul rolls it out for us. That God chose us in him, there's that phrase, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That phrase in him rings over and over and over and over and over again in the doctrine of Paul's communication to the church in Ephesus, okay? And I think sometimes we're more comfortable with it being about our salvation than about our living, and I want you to understand thing. Everything about our salvation depends on being in Christ. There is no salvation without being in Christ, okay? Paul makes that clear. There is also no strength. And Paul is making that clear. You, you, you feel the tension of the struggle, of the schemes of the devil, of the doubts in your own mind and the fear in your own heart. You feel that? Well, there is no shot at victory without strength in Christ. You can know more. You can try more. You can pray more. You can do all those things. In Christ is the key phrase to this. We do not fight with the facts of our salvation. We fight with our Savior. Does that make sense? Let me finish with a couple of thoughts. Here's a quote. God's strength cannot be mistaken for mere internal energy as though God were promising to dispense spiritual vitamins or pet pills. Paul's specific wording indicates that God does not want to merely to supplement our strength with his, but so to invigorate the new life that he has regenerated in us, that he becomes our strength. Th this is not just words. This is reality. He becomes the fighter. He becomes the strength. He becomes the heart of the whole resistance. So, be encouraged. Satan and his demons were defeated at the cross and are now under Christ's feet and yours. So the invisible world in which they attack us and we defend ourselves is the very world in which Christ reigns over them and we reign with him. If we are filled with the spirit, Satan's forces cannot subdue us. When we avail ourselves of Christ, there is always victory. Next week, we're going to unpack all these specific ways in which we avail ourselves of Christ. Hope you come back Hope you're encouraged. Let's pray for God's strength. Lord God, I do pray for all of us in this room. There is this whole other part of unseen. It is the uh, rulers and authorities, cosmic powers uh, over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places all set their attention against Christ in us and in the world. And, and to be honest, Lord, it feels that way sometimes, but we don't know how specific it is, how personal it is, how powerful it is, and, and how scheming it is. God, would you help us? Help us to perceive that when the attacks come, they're, 
They're not because you have failed or you have changed or you were lost in the first place. It's because there's a liar and a deceiver and an imitator in the room. God, there's not a demon behind every door, but there's clearly more influence than we ever give it its due. So as we leave here today, I just pray that we would really hover in on what it is to be in Christ. And what would come from that is faith, a deep faith that would push back on the darkness. That's our prayer, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.